Hello, and welcome to the Salem at Home podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. Well, if you've got your Bibles, uh, turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 12. You can follow along, put a thumb, uh, kind of a, just a mark in there. I'll get back to it in just a minute as we read that opening part. But let me begin by saying I don't like to lose things. Anybody like losing things? Any, anybody? I despise losing things. Um, and this is a difference between my wife and I uh, to a certain extent because if she loses something, she just assumes she will find it eventually. Um, I don't assume that at all, right? I go on a mad dash everywhere to find this. And I, because of this, I live under the assumption that I don't lose things. In fact, I brought this book with, a, with me today. This is a book, uh, one of six, I think, that we went through when we were becoming foster parents in Rutherford County. Um, and I'll never forget the day I sat down to talk, this is book two, Understanding Separation and Loss. On page 20 of this book, and I will read it to you just so you get the full impact of what I dealt with on this day, It said, take a few minutes to think about an object, not a person or a pet, that you have lost. Pick an object that was very important to you or had sentimental value, such as a piece of jewelry given you by a loved one. Choose that object you lost and never found, but still remember very well. And the next step, write down the name of the object that you lost. I sat with this, and I sat with this, and then I wrote down... I've never lost anything. (laughs) And I meant it. I meant I I don't lose things. In fact, the the social worker came over to my house, Javon, she sat in front of me and my wife, and my wife went down. This is actually my wife's book here. She talked about how she had lost her wedding ring, her engagement ring, uh, and she had found that eventually. She lost her cell phone, never to be found. That is in the Chattahoochee River. Way down yonder on the Chattahoochee, it is somewhere down there uh, on the Chattahoochee River, but it is it is gone, right? Um, I wrote, I have never lost anything, to which my wife and Javon looked at me like, what is wrong with you, right? Like, yes, you have lost anything. And I thought about it, and I'm like, no, I haven't. I don't lose things. Like, that's not, if I lose it, I find it. I, I haven't lost anything. And then we pushed, push comes to shove, and I said, I know what I've lost, a sock. I've lost a sock, and it drives me crazy to realize that I only have one sock and not the pair of socks because someone has done it. But I didn't lose that sock. Surely someone else did the laundry the day that that sock was lost. I didn't lose that sock. It wasn't me at all. And and it just blows my mind. And and this is, maybe this is just me and my, you know, sort of neurotic behavior. But it's part of me that I do not like to lose things. You know, now, saying this out loud in this space and even saying it afterwards kind of seemed silly. I'm like, yeah yeah, I have lost things, right? (laughs) There's this part where I'm like, oh my gosh, we're talking about the stages of grief, and I am like locked into denial 101. Like, it is all, like denial has taken over me. I can't even see my way out of the denial that's there. But this is how deeply I hate, I loathe loss. And to a certain extent, this is, this is true for all of us. Now, you may not go to the extent of me denying it altogether, thinking that you never have lost anything in your life, but Particularly as we celebrate our graduates this morning, there is a sense in which they lose something. You gain a whole lot of stuff, graduates. You gain this brand new world, you gain a new job, you gain new employment, you gain new skills. You have all these other opportunities, but in this stage of your life, this in-between stage as I described it earlier, you actually do lose something. 
You have to leave something behind on the other part of it. And what we discover in seasons like this is that loss is as much a part of life as winning or finding or gaining things. Loss is something that accompanies us all through life, one that, one that, uh, that you'll gain, the other time you'll lose. And we have this back and forth in our lives. And although this is a big moment of loss and transition in y'all's life, this is not the only loss or transition that you'll face. In fact, I started thinking, as one would often do on a graduation Sunday, I started thinking about what graduation looked like for me back in 1998 when I graduated from high school. And, and some of you are like, wow, that was 98. And then others of you are like, my gosh, that's forever ago. I don't care where you're at on that. Like, when I graduated, I lost, and this is no joke, because of my decision to go to college where I did, I lost the three best friends that I had, um, and I moved away. And we rarely spoke. You know, there wasn't like quick contact in this moment. I lost my friend immediately. I lost grounding in what I thought I was going to do. The day before prom, I was convinced that I was going to become a general surgeon, general trauma surgeon. That was going to be my life. I was going to follow in the footsteps of my uncle. That would be where I go. But just after prom, I lost that vision. I lost that sort of reality. I lost the opportunity to go to UNCA where I wanted to go, and I ended up landing in Tennessee. And while I was there, I thought I had a vision of where I should go with my degree. And about two months in, as is the case with most college graduates, my major changed. Right? And then about two months later, it changed again. And like two months later, and so I kept losing over and over and over again. And this loss just sort of accompanied me. At that time, as many of you know, I was a Pentecostal boy being trained to be a Pentecostal preacher, and I wasn't the best at that, but that's what I was doing. And through the years, I sort of lost a piece of that until 2017 arrived, or really 2016, and I started discerning once again a loss that would come in my life, a loss of where I was in the tradition of my youth and a movement that would bring me to this space, that would cause me to land in this space. And it's a series of losses in life that has ultimately led me to the development that I'm at today and the place that I'm at today. And for each of us, we're in this same zone. It's this season where we have to accept the inevitability of certain losses around us in order to grow into the person that God wants us to be. As Barbara Brown Taylor suggests, she would say that popular religion focuses so hard on the spiritual successes around us that most of us don't know the first thing about the spiritual fruits of failure or loss. As a group of people who follow Christ, we often want to focus on the places where we win and we minimize the places where we have lost, where we've had to give, give something up. But there are spiritual fruits that can only be developed in your life and in the seasons of your life that are found in the middle of these failure moments, these moments of loss. There are fruits that are developed in the middle of illnesses. There are fruits that are developed in the middle of job loss. There are fruits that we find when it feels like our marriage is falling apart or where we're estranged from other people, maybe our children in our life. And as, as, as ironic as this may seem, we often see in these seasons we see God more clearly than other seasons of our lives. It's in the seasons of chaos and disorder where it becomes a little more clear where God is and how God's moving. And when we look back, when each of us look back and tell the grand narrative of the story of our lives, it seems like the peaks that rise up as those places that we want to point to and highlight are often the places where we've lost. 
where we've actually discovered that that loss changed us for the better. It's in the wilderness times, not in the times of abundance, that we're made stronger and changed. So when talking about unspiritual disciplines of the Christian life, nobody wants to talk about this. Nobody wants to talk about loss. But I think we have to talk about the practice of getting lost, of discovering what it means to be lost. And on a day where we celebrate the amazing accomplishments of all these graduates who are gathered here, I think I would do you a disservice if I didn't address the loss that is both present and is waiting for these graduates in the next stage of their life. There's a loss that they walked through, and there's a loss that lies before him. And fortunately for all of us, the great-grandfather of our faith is one who experienced the spirituality of loss like no one else. Father Abraham is one whose entire spiritual existence got wrapped up into the experience of loss. Not in gaining the whole world, but in losing everything about his world. And throughout his life, Abraham's journey with God was marked by one loss after another. Before he built an altar to honor God, before he would ever worship God, he had to experience loss. In fact, it seemed that every time he experienced an intense moment of loss, he would respond by offering an altar or commemorate it in that moment, right? And I mean, think about this for just a minute. There's the sacrifice of Isaac, and there are lots of stories that we might point to, uh, but the sacrifice of Isaac is perhaps one of the most well-known where he's asked by God to sacrifice his only son, and this takes place in Genesis chapter 2. And, and for me, I would feel like, yeah, that's the greatest sense of loss. Right? If God asked me to, to sacrifice one of my children for him, like this, I can't think of a greater sense of loss than that right there. But for Abraham, well, this wasn't exactly true. This wasn't the greatest loss that he would have ever endured. And it's true for a couple reasons. One, because the culture that he came out of, it was pretty common in those days to, to sacrifice children. I mean, I, let's... We won't get into the judgmental part of that, but that was sort of a thing that they did in that day and from where he came from in Ur, it was a common practice amongst pagans to do that. So that would have been a little bit normal to him. But even beside all that, Abraham had already experienced loss after loss after loss. In fact, the sacrifice of Isaac was the last in a long line of losses that he would have in his life. And so for Abraham, it wasn't the worst thing that he had ever faced. It wasn't the hardest thing that he'd ever faced in his life. In fact, the first time that Abraham ever experienced this, this sense of loss was when God first spoke to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, we see God coming to Abraham and speaking to him in this moment. And the authors of Genesis, they sort of introduce Abraham and his family in Genesis chapter 11, but it's really in Genesis chapter 12 that we start to see this unpacked. So we'll put this on the screen, but in the very first verse, when God speaks to Abraham for the first time, listen to what he says. It says in verse 1 of chapter 12, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, from your kindred and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. Now, this is the very first act of worship, and it's not to build an altar. It's not to build a temple. It's not to gather a group of, of people together. It's not to write something down or to sing some songs. It's not giving up food for, for a season or praying to God for a long period of time. It's none of those things. The very first act of worship that Abraham is asked to do is to give up everything that he's known to give up his land, to give up this space where he feels at home, to give up all of these things. Abraham had had a set pattern of how he would get through life. He knew how he would occupy. He knew the fields that were around him. He knew where to plant his crops around him. He knew where the herds should graze. He knew all of these things about life. He had a normal, ordinary, habitual way of acting and living in the world. And Haran was that place. 
Haran was a place that he'd grown comfortable with. It was a place where he knew how to navigate the intricacies of the world. There were well-worn paths that he could walk down and he could avoid danger if he would just stay on those paths. And all of us in this room, we have our Harans. We have that place where we feel safe. We have that place where we feel stable in the world, where things are within our control, and we prefer those places of stability. They're simpler. They're easy for us to navigate. We have this set pattern of being in the world, and we develop it because it is comfortable, because it is easy, because it is predictable in the way that we operate in the world. And for some of us, this would be your home. All right, you can sit in your home. You're the most free there. It's very predictable. You got the temperature control. Some of you will adjust the temperature on your phone before you get home just so it feels nice and cozy when you get there. Right? We, we know our homes. For others of us, it might be that uh, uh, it's our place of employment. We've been there for years and years and years, and we know the way that things go. We know how things operate. We know how we should, should function in that space, and that becomes the place of stability. For others, it's the place we worship. It's a place where we can come and we can gather with other people. And this place, something like this right here, becomes a place of stability. I know what each of these windows look like. I I know the sound that the floors make when I step on it in this place. I, I, I see and feel and smell all the smells in this space, and it becomes predictable for me. But God comes to Abraham, and while Abraham is sitting in his Haran, his place of predictability, the very first thing he asks him to do is to disrupt that way of being. To change it up. To transform it. To move into a different place and to see things in a different world. The first act of worship as he comes before him is to get lost. He asks him to give up all the comforts of the world that are firmly within his grasp and to, and grasp and to get lost in that moment. And, and somehow, in the middle of his lostness, what's interesting is that God promises that there will be blessings. Look at the next few verses that come out of this. He says in verse 2, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing to others who are around you. And then he goes further. He says, I will bless those who bless you and the ones who curse you. I will curse you. I will curse them. And in you, all of the families of the world shall be blessed. Now, what's interesting about this is God has asked him to get lost to get rid of everything that is stable in his life. But in the midst of experiencing that loss, he starts to pour out the abundance of blessing. Our natural inclination is never to assume that we're going to be safe when we exit those places of safety. Our natural inclination in life is, man, if I get out of this comfort zone, if I get out of this, then then danger could happen. Things could happen that are wrong to me. I don't want to go down that path. But in this space, God is saying, if you will get lost, there will be blessings on the other side. God promises Abraham that the blessings actually will be poured out in the middle of these lost zones. And Abraham then responds to the call. Look at what he says in verse 4. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, and Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. He takes members of his family with him, but the author definitely wants to illustrate exactly where Abraham is in this process. He was 75 years old. You think Abraham's a young man? He didn't just graduate college, right? He's a 75-year-old dude who is giving up everything in his life to move to a different space. 75 years of stability, 75 years of getting used to the roads around him, getting used to all the people in the neighborhood, and 75 years go by, and God asks him to move to a different space. He had this long life of predictability, And it's after that that he takes some of his family and his 75 years of experience, and he says, I'm about to get lost, y'all. I'm about to go out on my own. And in spite of all of this, he goes 
and he finds his way to Canaan. In verse 5, Abraham took his wife Sarai and, and his brother's son Lot and all the possessions that they had gathered and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran, and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. He left the land that his father had settled, he, and he settled in the land of promise that God would give him. And look what happens when he arrives. The end of verse 5 and then verse 6. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh, at the time the Canaanites were in the land. Now, this is something that's always going to happen in our seasons of loss. We're going to get into these seasons of loss with expectations that something new is going to be and some blessings going to be there. God has promised that I'm going to receive the land. And when he gets there, someone else has already claimed the land. Someone's already there. It doesn't make sense how in this new space he would be able to inherit the land when there are already people there. And Abraham does what God uh, asks of him. He leaves everything. He experienced the loss. He arrives in the new land. And when he gets in the new land, he experiences Yet another loss. The land's already taken. The land's already occupied. And so again, God comes to him in verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give you this land. And so, by faith, Abraham built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. He says, The blessings of you are yours, even if you have a lifetime of losses around you. You won't see the blessings of this land. Your children may see the blessings of this land. You, perhaps, Abram, will be a stranger in this land your entire life. But one day, your children will experience it. They will be changed and transformed. And this may seem sort of overwhelming to us, right? Because, it, and, and in fact, it may seem a little cruel. As I was reading through this text, it's like, you're going to bring me in this land and you're only going to give it to my children later? Like, why couldn't you clear it out or make it openly mine? But the reality, uh, the, this is the reality of our lives, our lives are constantly marked by loss after loss after loss. There's nothing that exists in our lives that exists as full permanence. Right? All things are temporary in our lives. We're strangers for this season of our lives. And so why not find God here in the lostness? Why not look for God in the places where we are lost? And this is the question that comes before Abraham, and this is ultimately the question that lies before you. In the places of loss in your life, where is God already at work? Where is God already right in front of you? You see, Abraham responds to the invitation here, and he, as he moved from the hill country east, on the east of Bethel, he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west, with Ai on the east. He builds an altar there. He builds a place where he can worship and honor God in the midst of his season of lostness. Now, what's interesting to me about this passage is this is the first time that a sort of traditional form of worship arises in this entire story. He's accompanied God on this crazy journey. He's gotten lost in the land. And finally, in the midst of his lostness, as he's looking out across a land that's already occupied, and he doesn't know if he'll ever get to see the blessings of it in his life, he sits down and he builds an altar. He notices that this season of his life needs to be a place of sacred remembrance, this place where there is loss all around him. And he marks this moment. He marks it so that he won't forget it, so that he won't push it to the side, and so that future generations won't forget it either, so that they'll be able to look back on this. And of course, this isn't the only place that he builds an altar. Abraham builds four altars in Genesis. He builds one at this moment where he's experiencing the loss. He goes a little bit further down the road. He still experiences even more loss in the land. He builds a second altar. He goes one chapter further in Genesis chapter 13, and he can no longer cooperate with Lot, his, his nephew, and so they split paths. He loses the family that he did have close to him, another loss, another altar. 
And then finally, Genesis chapter 22 arrives, and God asks him to give up his only son, Isaac. And the fourth altar appears. You see, every single time that there is an altar that appears in Abraham's life, it's not on a moment of victory. It's in the middle of loss. It's in the middle of loss that he chooses to operate and to worship and to honor God. And the spiritual practice of getting lost is foundational for Abraham's faith formation. And I would suggest that the spiritual, uh, the spiritual practice of getting lost is foundational for you and I as well. How you and I choose to handle those periods of life where we seem to be most out of control are the places where our understanding of God gets shaped the best. For you and me in these, series, in, these, in these seasons of lives, you know, we experience the beauty of God on Sunday morning, right? We have great Bible studies from time to time or devotions or the women will have a wonderful meal now on Thursday night. We've got all of these things going on in our lives that are wonderful, but it's in the seasons of loss where perhaps no one else is around that our faith grows the most. Our daily faith is shaped by how we choose to navigate these radical areas of loss. And here's why this is an important practice for us to reclaim. There's just a couple of things I want to leave you with. This is an important practice for us to reclaim because the practice of getting lost helps us develop gratitude and it helps us act with empathy. Getting lost in the world helps us develop gratitude and it helps us act with empathy. We develop gratitude for the blessings that we find in those lost periods. We have this overabundance of gratitude that just sort of springs out of our hearts and our lives. These blessings that we didn't know were possible came to us. And so the only way that we can respond is with gratitude, right? As I look at each of your faces who are gathered here, I realize that if I hadn't gone through some of the experiences of loss in my life, I wouldn't be face-to-face with you today. I wouldn't experience the beauty of the relationships that I have in this moment. And so there's a sense in which gratitude has to fill my heart up with that, right? If I hadn't lost the tradition of my youth, I wouldn't have gained the beauties of the tradition that I now stand in. And this form of gratitude, it was something that was actually sealed in the early, earliest writings, right? The children of Israel, they kept up the practice of getting lost. It wasn't just Abraham. They got lost in the wilderness. They got lost in this area. They got lost in this area. And eventually... God is the one who brings them into a season of loss, and he always wants to remind them of that season of loss. And so when they act in the world, here's what he says to them. This is is how the Jews understand the very first commandment. In Exodus 20, uh, verse 2, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. I want you to remember this. I'm the one who brought you out of that and brought you into the wilderness. Whenever you sit down to think about anything you should do in terms of faith, remember that it is God who brought you out of whatever space you were in, even if he brought you into a wilderness on the other side. And God wants to constantly remind the children of Israel. There's this call to remember who God is so that our hearts can be filled with gratitude. And when we remember and our hearts are filled with gratitude, there's always action that accompanies it. Look at another place where he does this in Deuteronomy 15, 15. It says, remember that you were at one time slaves in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you. For this reason, I lay this commandment upon you today. But what is the commandment? What's the commandment that he's asking them to do? He's asking them to remember that at one point in time they were slaves in Egypt, but he liberated them. And because of that, they must respond to others who are enslaved and liberate them. There's There's this interesting way in which lost people start to see lost people. 
When you recognize your own lostness in life, then it's easier for you to look around and see other people who are lost around you. When the children of Israel were able to recognize and honor the fact that they were slaves in life, they could look out and they could have compassion and empathy on the slaves who surrounded them. And this is that moment where we move from gratitude to where we start to act with empathy. In fact, there are lots of other verses that go on about this, but in Deuteronomy 10, he addresses specifically the act of being lost. And he says, you shall also love the stranger, or another way of saying this, is the one who is lost in your land, for you were once strangers in the land of Egypt, or you were once lost yourself. See, there's nothing quite like getting lost that enables us to help see others who are the strangers amongst us to love them, to honor them, to lift them up. And the more that we push away from the practice of getting lost in the world, the more difficult it will be for us to engage with people who are lost around us, for us to see their need to be found, their need to be brought in, their need to have compassion. And when we live in a world where we get from point A to point B as fastly as we can, we routinely miss out on opportunities to be lost. We lose our love, we lose our empathy for other people, and we no longer find the stranger in our midst. So here's what I want to do this morning. As we close out and as we get ready to move into a time of final worship around the table of the Lord, I want to encourage you to do something very specific this week. In fact, you can do it right after we leave church this morning. I want you to get lost. And this is not the way that your daddy used to tell you to get lost. My, is anybody, I just need to see your hands. Anybody's parents ever tell you to get lost? Was it only mine? We gotta, okay, I, I'm happy that I'm not alone. Like, I told this to Aaron earlier. I'm like, my dad used to tell me to get lost. She's like, that's a terrible thing to say. I'm like, but he meant it in this way, like go and explore and do all this stuff, you know. But anyways, I'm, I'm not telling you to get lost in that way, but I am telling you to get lost. You see, there's, there's spaces in our lives where you will, whether you want to or not, be lost. You'll end up in spaces where you didn't want to be and you'll, you'll land in those lost areas. But there's other times of life where you can intentionally pursue a practice of getting lost. Maybe it means you drive into a community that you've not been in. Maybe it means you explore a part of your house that you never go into. Right? Just sit in that part of your house and be like, I haven't seen this room in three years. I didn't even know we had it, right? It could be any area in your life that you routinely don't enter. And today I'm going to ask you to enter it. And when you enter it, I'm going to ask you to do a couple things. Number one, I want you to look around and see where God might be present in that lost or forgotten space. Just see if you can see signs of God's activity in that space. And number two, when you're there, I want you to ask yourself, where am I uncomfortable? And this is really important because there's one thing that's going to keep you and I back from the practice of loss. And it's this lie that we're unsafe. We don't enter into new spaces a lot of times because we're like, I'm unsafe there. I want you to ask yourself this question very seriously. Am I unsafe or am I just uncomfortable? Because if you're just uncomfortable, then you need to press through that to engage the God who is present there. I'm not asking you to put yourself in a place where you know, you're going to be completely unsafe. But I want, you to, I want you to seriously answer that question. Am I just uncomfortable right now? And that's why I don't want to do this? My, my, my wife doesn't want to go in our basement because there's like, you know, crickets this big or something like that, All right? Not unsafe, cricket's not going to harm you, but, but it is uncomfortable. And in our lives, we'll avoid a lot of spaces that we could go into and get lost in just because we're uncomfortable. 
And I want us to sort that out in our minds. So as you get lost this afternoon, number one, where is God in that space as you go into it? But number two, what's making me uncomfortable here? What's hard for me to encounter? And it's in the midst of all of that that God starts to do something in your heart and starts to prepare you for those times in your lives where you don't get a choice. Those places and those seasons in your life where you're going to be lost and you didn't ask to be lost. It's through that intentional practice of doing it over and over again. And finally, when you go and get lost, here's the other thing I want you to do. I I don't want you to get lost alone. You notice what Abraham did whenever he left? He didn't walk alone. He took his wife. He took his nephew. He took a few other family members, and he got lost. And I'll say this for our graduates in particular. One of the beauties of this moment of lostness in your life is that you're surrounded by a community who can get lost with you. Like, yes, I, I don't know what tomorrow brings. I love your new title. It's amazing. I don't know what that means. She doesn't either. That's good. <laughs> Travis, you need to clarify that for her at some point in time. I don't know what it means, but we're with you. Right? We're here. And we'll be willing to get lost alongside of you to figure out what life means. And that's true for our graduates, but it's also true for all of us here. That we choose to be a part of a community of faith so that we can get lost together. So that we can be held together in those seasons of loss and don't have to go at it alone. We can navigate what that means for us as individuals and for us as a community of faith. And I want you to do that this afternoon. You know, some of you, I don't know if any of you do this. Sometimes I remember people, they go out for a Sunday afternoon ride, right? When you go out for a Sunday afternoon ride, sometimes you do genuinely lost. Sometimes you just follow that same old pattern of behavior. If you go out for one today, just get lost in a brand new area. But here's the second thing that I want you to do, or the opportunity I want to lay before you. I have this beautiful opportunity this summer to engage every single week with a group of students and youth groups from around the country in an organization called YouthWorks. And every Tuesday night, starting this Tuesday night, I get to speak to them as the community speaker. And then I get to invite them to get lost in our town. It's going to be great. (laughs) I'm going to invite them to get lost. And here's why. Because I think missions trips are those spaces in our lives. It's the closest spiritual practice to getting lost. You go to another country. You go to Haiti. you You go to Jamaica. You go to somewhere over in Africa. You're lost. And for whatever reason, you start to see God more clearly. You know why? Because you're lost. It's a spiritual practice of getting lost that enables us to see. And these students are going to come into our town, and I would say, why didn't you just stay in your town? There's people who need you there. But here's the reason why. Because when they come to our town, they're lost. And they can start to see God in all these new ways. And what I would love, if you're interested, and you can do this any Tuesday night, you can meet me at Pops Park, downtown Forest City. And I'll gather with these students and then we will send them out to get lost and I would love to have guides who can walk with them through our town just to be present with them to answer any questions that they might have about the town but, but to just get lost with them for a little while every Tuesday night at 6.45 we'll gather in Pops I'll send them out they'll get lost they'll end up at my house uh, down the road uh, just a little while later but it would be great if we could connect with them in that way 
if we as the community of faith could come alongside and be like, hey, you're lost, but I'm with you in this moment. So there's two opportunities. Number one, you get lost. And number two, I'm inviting you to go on someone else's journey as I intentionally try to get them lost in our town. I'm not trying to get a bunch of students saved this year. I'm trying to get them lost all in our town. That's, that's my tagline for this, for this entire thing. Because lost people recognize lost people around them. Lost people are able to see them.